I'm just going to make the announcements uh, now so that um, it won't disrupt the, the way we end the service. But just so everybody's aware that Kids Club and Victory Youth are back this week. So uh, we encourage you guys to be a part of that. Um, we're also entering a new year. And what we're going to be looking at for the first five weeks of the year is uh, God's call to prayer, which we're going to be looking at today. And then the next four weeks, we're going to be doing a vision series that the whole Liberty Communion of Churches will be doing together so that uh, we together as a communion of churches will uh, know um, and understand our vision and purposes together as we're moving forward uh, uh, together as a communion of churches in the next year and years to follow. So we're really looking forward to that and just want you guys to be aware of those things uh, as we move forward. And for you online, if you don't, aren't aware, uh, having seen the table, this is a communion Sunday, so if you have not any elements, uh, certainly you can grab a bread or cracker and grape juice or some type of uh, liquid, and you can certainly have communion with us uh, during the time that we have communion in the service. So, Well, here we are, the new year. Um, I was thinking about this, and I, and I know that this is probably one of those questions that some of you go, oh, but how many of you have made a New Year's resolution? Anybody? So some people have made New Year's resolutions. Uh, some people think it's foolish. Some people realize that it's, it's something that they're never going to keep, so why should I make a New Year's resolution? Uh, I was looking at some statistics about New Year's resolutions. 38.5% of U.S. adults set New Year's resolutions yearly. That, I thought it would be more than that. Um, 59% of young adults, 18 to 34, have New Year's resolutions, making them the largest demographic, which was interesting also. They have more hope than the older people do. 9% successfully keep their New Year's resolutions. 23 of, people, of the people who make them quit by the end of the first week. So there you go. So I don't know what category you're in, but uh, New Year's resolutions seem to be something that very few people are able to keep. Um, today's sermon, I'm going to be presenting a New Year's resolution for us as individuals, as families, and Christ's church to be growing as a people of prayer. But I wanted to start out the new year by making sure we understand who we are as believers. You know, it's interesting in the workshop that we're doing on faith and sexuality, we've been talking about identity a lot. Um, and certainly there's a lot of ways you can look at identity. But who are we as believers? And I, I love what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is what he says. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And, and let's, let's see. You are a chosen people. Can I hear you say that? I am a chosen person. See how hard it is for you? 
You are chosen. We are a chosen people. Say it out loud. I'm a chosen person. God has chosen me. Hallelujah. I'm a royal, part of a royal priesthood. How amazing is that? We are a holy nation. And we're God's special possession. Now let's do it again. We are a... A... Yes, A... And God's... Hallelujah, that's who we are. That's a wonderful thing, is it not? That's a wonderful, wonderful identity that we have all because of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And one of the things I wanted to talk about today, I was actually going to come dressed in a black sort of outfit because I'm going to be talking about the priesthood and um, understanding that we're now the royal priesthood. When you looked at the priest in the Old Testament, you saw basically what? They offered the sacrifices. They were the ones who connected the people to God and God to the people. They were the mediators and intercessors. And now we are the royal priesthood. We're now the intercessors. We're the ones who stand in the gap. We're the ones who represent people to God, who bring people to God so that there can be blessing on them. And that's where prayer comes in. Because God has given us now as a royal priesthood an open throne and access through intercession to pray for one another, to pray for people in our lives, to pray for people in our world. It's a wonderful gift and privilege given to a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Amen? So that's what we're going to be looking at. And I'm sure most of you know by now what happened at the Monday night football game last Monday night between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Buffalo Bills. DeMar Hamlin, a player on the Bills, after making a tackle, went into cardiac arrest. His heart stopped and he needed to be resuscitated. It was a horrific scene with medics and an ambulance rushing onto the field, players openly weeping, and then players and coaches from both teams kneeling together in a circle around DeMar, holding hands and praying. Could you put that picture up? This is what you saw. Praying, holding hands and praying. Now, why are they praying? Why are they praying? Well, let the prayer of an ESPN commentator, Dan Orlovsky, who actually prayed this prayer live on national TV, provide us with the answer. Listen to this prayer. I don't know if you've heard it. It's certainly been something that's made an impact on our culture. Uh, But let me just read this prayer because he's praying, and as he's praying, he's praying why we pray. God... We come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that we don't understand, that are hard, because we believe that you're God. And coming to you and praying to you has impact. We're sad, we're angry, and we want answers. But some things are unanswerable. We just want to pray truly, come to you and pray for strength for Damar, for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar, to be with his family, and to give them peace. 
If we didn't believe that prayer didn't work, we wouldn't ask this of you. God, I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift up Damar Hamlin's name. In your name, amen. National television, 50 seconds of uninterrupted, spirit-led prayer before anybody could get to him because there was such a movement of the Holy Spirit. There was not, nobody knew what to say. And it was powerful. And I love what O'Hallisby says about prayer. Prayer is helplessness united with faith. That's what produces prayer. And that's certainly what we saw in the prayer of Dan Orlaski as he was crying out to God. Helplessness combined with faith equals prayer. We're going to be looking at that today. What I did in the outline, you can see it's, it's two pages. We don't normally do that. But I wanted, I wanted you to have this as something you can look at and pray through, um, yeah, in different times. But the question is, why do we pray? What does prayer do? And the Word of God tells us what prayer does. And I'm just going to read through these to just so you understand and get a clear idea of what prayer does. And certainly you could add to this list, and maybe at some point you want to get these scriptures and pray through them and read through them. But what does prayer do? It opens the eyes of our hearts to know God's wisdom, truth, hope, inheritance, and power. It makes us know the depths of Christ's love in our hearts. It delivers us from temptation and evil. It provides us with the armor of God. It fills us with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It opens our hearts to love people. It opens the door for the good news of salvation to be known. It makes us bold. It, makes us, it raises up laborers for the harvest. It brings healing to people. It does more than we ask or imagine. This is what prayer does. And I'm sure we could probably get a number of other things from there. But think about that. This is what prayer does. Now, why does prayer have the ability to do this? Well, because it's the person we're praying to who's able to do it. So you need to know the God you're praying to. So let's look at that for a second. Who is this God that we're praying to? He's all-powerful. He's all-present. He's all-knowing. He's holy, it means he is what? Set apart. He is a creator. He is personal. He's purposeful. And he's faithful. This is the God we pray to. So as we do that, think about it. We're praying to a God who has all these attributes who's told us in his word that these are the things that prayer will do as you pray, and we know from the word that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible. The scripture tells us that he delights to hear the prayers of his children who call out, Abba, Father. How amazing is that? Listen to these words of Revelation 8, 3 and 4. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. 
He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. God hears every prayer. Every prayer goes up to his altar and he answers them. And here's the thing. He answers them with his power, with his wisdom and his love according to his will and purpose. That's the hard part. According to his will and purpose. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said to him, Lord, take this away from me. But what do we know? He eventually said to him, no, not my will, but your will be done. And of course we know because Christ was poured out as a drink offering, we are here today knowing that we are the children of God, knowing that we are a chosen people and a holy royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. So what does Paul say to us about prayer? At the end of Ephesians 6, 18, he says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. And so, yes, there are many ways to pray. And we in this church will have many different ways that we're going to pray. We're going to pray individually. We're going to pray with our family. We're going to pray with friends. We're going to pray corporately. We're going to have contemplative prayer. We're going to have pray for healing. These are the things that we do. And you'll be seeing more of that over, we hope, this next year, certainly as Josh and I have been thinking about some ways that we can encourage the congregation in prayer. See, what the Holy Spirit has been speaking to my heart over these last couple of months as I continue to encounter as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, a pop, a relative, a neighbor, when I experience the brokenness of our culture, the violence, the disregard of human life and dignity, the hatred, the animosity, the polarization, the misinformation, the manipulation, the physical and sexual abuse, the racism both in and outside the church, there is an urgent need for God's people to be a royal priesthood, crying out before the throne of God, for a fresh pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And that's why today, as I talk with you about prayer, I'm going to be focusing on this idea of spiritual awakening, renewal, and revival. When you think about our culture, and you think about all that's going on, and we see it before us, and I know that each one of us has been impacted by it. Some of us are full of fear. I mean, uh, if you're a parent, there's certainly many things that you can be fearful about in the life of this culture. Certainly as we see violence and murder uh, in our streets, a 24-7 cycle of these things, uh, when we see the disarray and the anger and all the things that are happening, we see a moral decline, um, we, can, we can think... Is, is God here? Where is the power of God? Does God make a difference? 
And the answer is yes, he does. And the answer is that there are seasons in which, as God's people are led in urgent prayer, that God works in some very powerful ways to transform communities, cities, countries. I love what Ian Bounds says here. To look back upon the progress of the divine kingdom upon earth is to review revival periods which have come like refreshing showers upon dry and thirsty ground, making the desert to blossom as the rose and bringing new eras of spiritual life and activity just when the church had fallen under the influence of the apathy of the times. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? I like looking at uh, awakenings and revivals and renewals. They're encouraging to me to do that. There's a missionary couple. They've been missionaries in Indonesia for a number of years. Um, They have a ministry called Beautiful Feet Ministries. And they've studied revivals. And um, interestingly enough, uh, they put together a list of revivals that have been at least documented in some way or another. And this is from the Old Testament times till 2010. How many of you think they actually have doc- documented? I won't, I won't, you don't need to guess. Um, 242 revivals, starting in 1700 B.C. with a revival under Jacob. And this is a whole list of them. And ending in 2010 with the Indonesia revival. All over the world, different revivals. And I was thinking about our country and thinking about what what were some of the revival times, you know? Well, we had the Great Awakening in 1734 to 43. Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, Northampton, Massachusetts. 300 were born again in six months. Revivals broke out in over 100 towns, and there was this movement for over 10 years. It, it, you, when you read the, what, what happened was is that, that people were just being impacted. The, the moral climate, the, everything that was going on, there was a complete change. And then almost 100 years later, as things fell back into apathy, there was a second great awakening in 1800 and 1840. 100,000 renewed and born again in Rochester, New York. It spread to 1,500 towns, and God used it in a very powerful way. And then there was the businessman's revival in 1857 and 58. A businessman, Jeremy Lampier, started a prayer meeting for businessmen at noon at his church. First week, there were six, then there were 20, and then 40. And after a month, there was no room. Other churches opened up. Over one million were born again, and another one million of existing church members were born again. And God was at work in powerful ways. There was the urban renewals and revivals of 1875 and 1885. That was Dwight Moody. Hundreds of thousands converted. Post-World War II, Billy Graham 180 million attended 400 crusades. 
And then there was the Jesus movement in the late 60s and early 70s. I am a product of that movement. Right? I came to the Lord in 1980. I am a product of that movement, of the Spirit of God moving in powerful ways. I want you to get a sense that God has come in powerful ways, and and he's actually come in times just like the time we're, we're living in. When times seemed desperate, when the moral decline was going forward, he began to raise up men and women who began to pray urgently in a way, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, where God then poured out the Holy Spirit. John Piper says this in, in, in this quote, In the history of the church, the term revival in its most biblical sense has meant a sovereign work of God in which the whole region of many churches, many Christians, has been lifted out of spiritual indifference and worldliness into conviction of sin, earnest desires for more of Christ and his word, boldness and witness, purity of life, lots of conversions, joyful worship, renewed commitment to missions. How many of you does your heart resonate? Is that not what we would want to see happening? And there's much to say about this, right? But we're going to concentrate on what is biblically and historically the one non-negotiable universal ingredient in times of spiritual renewal, awakening, and revival, and that is corporate, prevailing, intensive, kingdom-centered prayer. That's a big word, isn't it? I first heard that word about 30 years ago. I was like, what is he talking about? My father-in-law loved that word, especially the whole idea of prevailing, intensive, kingdom-centered prayer. But as he was speaking, he said it had three basic traits. A request for grace to confess sins and humble ourselves. A compassion and zeal for the flourishing of the church. And a yearning to know God, to see his face, to see his salvation and glory to be known among the nations. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking... This has to be a work of the Holy Spirit, does it not? I have so much going on in my life, and I am so dragged down by the third soil. I don't know about you. The busyness and all that's going on with life, all the sense of responsibilities and the things that are important. And I love what Paul says in Romans 8, 26 and 27. Here's what he says. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And and really what that's saying is, it's that we need the Holy Spirit to enliven our hearts with a new urgency to pray in a way that we probably may have never prayed before. But first, that spirit needs to work so deeply in our lives that we would see our own sin before the Lord and then in humility be poured out in intercession for others. And and that is what the Holy Spirit 
needs to do. That's what we need to cry out for. That's what Pentecost was all about. It didn't just happen. They went back and they prayed for 10 straight days. They didn't come out of the room. But after 10 straight days and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people from all different places around the globe came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then you keep going through the book of Acts and you see again another pouring out of the Spirit in Acts 2, another pouring out of the Spirit in Acts 4, another pouring out of the Spirit on Stephen in Acts 7, another pouring Spirit out in Acts 8, another pouring Spirit of the Spirit in Acts 13. And you see that there's these continued times of prayer and renewal and the Holy Spirit working and God taking up people and continuing to reshape them to where they're acting more and more like the people that they're called to be, holy, chosen, a royal priesthood, a people precious to God. So that's why I believe God is calling us as a generation to again kingdom-centered prayer Kingdom-centered prayer. What does it do? Well, I mean, I could go on for a long period of time with this, but there's a couple things that I think are important. One of them is a scripture verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, now listen to this, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That is unbelievable when you think about that. What is the weapons of our warfare? If it isn't the prayer and the word, as it says in Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit. And what energizes that sword of the Spirit, the Word of God? But prayer. And when prayer goes out with the power of the Word, God moves in powerful ways. That's why I love they call themselves beautiful feet. And think about this. What kind of strongholds are all of us being oppressed by right now? What kind of strongholds have such a hold on our culture? And we have weapons of warfare. And I think about this in my life, and I, I just went back, and here's a, a couple tidbits. My first year as a Christian, you've heard the story of my father-in-law taking me out to do street preaching, but what you didn't know is that a part of that was he wanted to work in Alany. At that time, in 1980, Alany had the highest murder rate in the city. That's why we were there. And there was a place on Alany Avenue called the Skilton House. And what he did was just gather groups of people to go down to the Skilton House, and we just began praying, praying for our own hearts and then praying for the neighborhood and praying against the evil and the strongholds in that neighborhood. And then we would go out and preach the word of God. In six months' time, the murder rate dropped in Alany. In a year, it was no longer the place where there was more murders in the city. 
Now, I'm sure people could attribute it to all kinds of things, but I'm going to attribute it to what God was doing as people began to pray. Now, take it back a few years later, and there's a woman in Fairhill, where the high-rise townhouses are where we work, where Pastor Vance has had a church for over 32 years. Her name was Miss Dawkins. Miss Dawkins would have prayer walks around the neighborhood. We would literally, and some of you were probably with us, we went with groups of people, and we literally walked the streets, and it got so big that the cops began to give us a procession, and we prayed along the streets. And God worked in powerful ways. We saw drug dealers come to the Lord. We saw a community that had such, so many hard things going on. And we, became, we began seeing God at work in this particular section of the city. It was very powerful. The tent we put up in Eswatini in 2007, in an area where there was no gospel, the, the, the first night we put it up, of course, um, we couldn't believe it. We put the generator on. We had like hundreds of people from the bush coming in. And we had, you know, you could call it a revival meeting or you could just say it was a service where the gospel was preached. But God was on the move. And uh, the people who didn't like it were the Sagomas. They were the witch doctors who rule all the villages around there. And they, they heard about what was going on. And they started coming into our services and the people were getting a little fearful about this. What was going on? What was happening? And then our teenagers, because our teenagers are so bold, hallelujah, and I know our teenagers are also, started to share the gospel with the Sangoma. And he got so, he didn't know what to do. He got so like, this makes sense to me, but he couldn't deal with it. He went shrieking out of the tent. And then for the next couple weeks, there was no issues with the Syngomas. None of them were up there at the tent. And um, what was powerful was is that by the time we left, there was a church there. Now, here's what we didn't know. So when we went back, the people began talking to us, and here's what they said. Well, we found out from the Syngomas that the reason none of them came to the tent anymore is because whenever they looked up at the tent, there was a ring of fire around the tent. God was at work in a powerful way. Sangoma saw a ring of fire. They didn't come. And yet, inside that fire, God was at work in powerful ways. He was destroying strongholds. And the last one I'll talk about is just happened. And I can't share a lot of the details because it's a part of our power and light ministry. But I remember, maybe some of you remember about three years ago, one of the towns in one of the countries where uh, the missionaries are was completely destroyed. Do you guys remember the pictures of that and all that was going on? We showed you some of the pictures of that. About sometime after that, the, one of the pastors there was um, basically told by the person who was going to be the mayor of the town that when the town gets rebuilt, we want to have a church right in the middle of town. This was unheard of in this culture. And just last week or maybe 10 days ago, we got a picture of a church in the middle of this restored town with a cross lit up and God destroyed a stronghold. Hallelujah. 
I mean, this, think about how powerful this is. Now, we don't know how long that's going to last. But God has destroyed these strongholds. And in the midst of that, people are coming to know something so powerful is that there is a God who loves them. There is a God who brings salvation and hope and peace and love and identity. How powerful is that? So as we think about this, and we think about us being that priesthood, we think that we now can be a part of crying out to God for awakening, renewal, and revival. It tells us in 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That is a promise, brothers and sisters. Do we pray that way? Have you ever prayed that way? And yet here is a promise in the scripture that tells us if we come and we pray in this way, he will bring healing to the land. We have seen when people corporately have been led to pray this way where God has come with renewal and revival where he has awakened the hearts of brothers and sisters, where he's brought spiritual healing to brothers and sisters who were Christians. How many of us need spiritual healing in our own lives? How do we pray? See, our country has fallen in a temptation of basing our hopes on technology, politics, affluence, and the appearance of peace. But now, as our technology ensnares and isolates us, our politics threaten to tear us apart. Our prosperity has led us to moral and cultural decline. God's words to Ezekiel speak to us today. Listen to these words. I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. Brothers and sisters, we're a royal priesthood. God is calling us to stand in the gap. He's calling us to be crying out and interceding as the priesthood for our country, for our neighbors, for our families, for our own hearts, and for the world. And he uses that prevailing kingdom-centered corporate prayer in conjunction with his word and promises to do what none of us, nor our politics, nor any other type of education is going to be able to do. And that is to change hearts. There is nothing more powerful in this world than the work of the Holy Spirit to change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I am a testimony. Are you a testimony? Why then? 
Why then have we not that sense of urgency to cry out? Is it not now that we have to ask the Holy Spirit to do that? Here's these words by Andrew Murray. There is a world with its needs entirely dependent upon and waiting to be helped by intercession. There is a God in heaven with his all-sufficient supply for all those needs waiting to be asked. There is a church with its wondrous calling and its sure promises waiting to be roused to a sense of its wondrous responsibility and power. And there is a world with its perishing millions with intercession its only hope. Brothers and sisters, as I come before you, I'm just saying as a pastor, I have been convicted of my own prayerlessness in this way. I have been convicted that my heart has not been as urgent in praying this way. I say sorry to you, my brothers and sisters, for not encouraging you to use that wonderful gift of being the royal priesthood to be impacting brothers and sisters' lives, our own families' lives. And so I have made a resolution before the Lord because the Spirit's been urgent in my heart. But I want to encourage you Is the Spirit urgently calling you to be a part of this priesthood that's going to bring renewal, revival, and awakening? Thursday morning prayer at 6 o'clock, we're learning to do that. It's a Zoom prayer meeting. Sometimes our missionaries join us. I encourage you to join us. But I've been led by the Holy Spirit to say it has to go one step further, Andrew. You you have to be able to encourage your brothers and sisters as you're being convicted. And so what I want to do is I want to start a a once-a-month concert of prayer for awakening, renewal, and revival. I'm going to start it out in Zoom because I want as many people as possible to be able to do it. I'm actually going to start it this Wednesday night, the 11th. I'm going to do it at 8 o'clock so that young families can get their children to bed and join us. If you're being led by the Holy Spirit, it'll be a Zoom meeting. I want to encourage you to be thinking about that. Thinking about your role and what God has given us as a great privilege to be in prayer about these things. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now, and I'm going to ask you to take a moment as the Spirit is leading you right now and and, and just take that moment. Maybe you need to ask the Spirit to give you an urgency. Maybe you need him to seal it in your heart. But just take a moment as the team comes up, however the Spirit's leading you to pray right now.
And while you're sitting and reflecting, we're going to sing this song as our corporate prayer in response to God's word this morning.
time for us to come to the table together.